0: The war has receded into the background for many Americans, preoccupied with daily life. The following program is brought to you in living color. The war in Afghanistan has been on like his first tour in Iraq. Air and naval forces of the United All States. The experience of Vietnam the is
1: to fighting fighting in a nuclear war. Action with the army infantry in Korea. Not
0: the army's fall back
1: in disorder and confusion.
2: Our, our intention the to destroy or enslave the Japanese fleet. Each year on the 11th day of the 11th month, We pause
0: as a nation to pay tribute to you, to thank you, the heroes over the generations who have served this country of ours with distinction.
2: Welcome to Veteran Voices, a podcast produced by the Veterans Breakfast Club and the Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh, Oral History Initiative.
1: Welcome to our podcast series. This is our 10th podcast. This is our second of this year. July 2014 is our recording date. I'm Kevin Farkas. I'm the director of Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh. Not joining me today, unfortunately, is Todd DiPastino, who's the executive director of the Veterans Breakfast Club. I assume Todd is on a wonderful beach somewhere sipping a Mai Tai with his toes in the sand. Joining us today will be our special guest, John Bailey, who is a documentary filmmaker. He also records veteran stories, and he has been for the past year or so, and he's working out of the Alakiski Valley, north of Pittsburgh. And he's been producing a wonderful series called Duty, Courage, and Honor. The Alikiski Valley Goes to War. So we'll have a chance to talk with John about his project, how he got into it, some of the stories that he's heard, the importance of these stories. But first, I'd like to talk a little bit about our recent press coverage. You know, I always like to talk about veteran voices of Pittsburgh and the Veterans Breakfast Club in the news. It's very important to us that our message gets out there. So perhaps you've seen us on television or on radio or perhaps the internet and certainly on our website. We were actually a part of a very significant event recently, although not directly. On June 3rd, about nine local World War II veterans received the French Legion of Honor Medal at Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hall in Pittsburgh, who happens to be a recording partner of ours. Three of those veterans are very active in the Veterans Breakfast Club, Michael Vernillo, Bill Carr, and Augie Pace. Around Memorial Day, I had a chance to sit down with Lenny McAllister, on the PCNC Network show, Night Talk, and talk a little bit about veterans' stories in the context of Memorial Day. And we were joined by Al Mercer of the Veterans Leadership Program in Western Pennsylvania. It was a very good discussion about the importance of these stories, the significance of military service, and especially the significance of that all-important tribute that we pay to veterans around Memorial Day. And I had a, a chance to put out there. Something that's very near and dear to me, some people would call it a peeve. I don't know what I would call it, but around Memorial Day, it always comes up. And I always say, look, you don't celebrate Memorial Day. It's a day of observance. So we honor, we observe, we recognize those who have lost their lives in the line of duty. So to say happy Memorial Day, well, you decide, but I think it's just plain wrong. Anyway, off of my soapbox there. Perhaps you saw us in the paper around May 2nd in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. There was a a, a previous story about some work that students have been doing discovering World War II veteran stories at Chartiers Valley in the school district there. Well, Todd had a wonderful post in the newspaper. It was entitled, Students Want to Know More About Veterans. And he basically promoted the Veterans Breakfast Club and, and our project to say, yeah, you know, it's very important that, that the young students are out there and they're engaging these veterans and they're asking about their stories so that bit of history doesn't get lost. And speaking of students in oral history, we just finished up our second annual oral history project with the Winchester Thurston School in Pittsburgh. We had a chance to bring in eight veterans, Vietnam to World War II, Korea, where the students had a chance to sit down with them and ask them of their experience. Now Todd and I, we certainly do a lot of work preparing the students to understand not only what oral history is, but also the specific nature of veterans oral history. So the students just didn't interview the veterans uh, without any awareness. Of you know what they were doing, we really prepared the students well. I think because we spent the time uh, you know uh, in the classroom working with the students. Also, since our last podcast, we had a chance to work with students at the Allegheny Community College, the South Campus in particular. Professor Carmen Livingston and Dean Barbara Evans there invited us in to meet with the students and, again, to talk about oral history and the veteran experience. And we were able to bring in some veterans for the students there to interview as well. I was actually one of those veterans. It's not very often that I get a chance to be on the other end of the camera or the the microphone. But I was one of those interviewees, along with Patricia Phillips, who was an Air Force flight nurse during the Iraq War as well as Walt Patton, World War II Air Corps veteran. Hey, here's a very interesting little thing I found out in May, that the cover of Beaver Life magazine was voted the best cover of 2013 for the Haibu Community uh, Magazine series. I didn't know about this. We had an article in Beaver Life and uh, submitted some photographs, and the editor put together the cover with our photographs, and that was uh, very well received. So we won the Cover of the Year Award for 2013. And of course, if you want to find out more about their latest news and events, you can check us out at our websites, veteranvoicesofpittsburgh.com and veteransbreakfastclub.com.
2: Now listen to me very carefully.
1: Are you listening to me? I look into your eyes and I can't tell whether you're
2: getting anything I'm saying. I wanna be known as the greatest, world famous, still the most hated, most underrated, but most overplayed shit. So listen to me. Now listen very carefully. I shall say this only once.
1: Listen very carefully. I shall say this only once. What do I say
0: next? <laughs> Stop, look, listen to you. Let me talk.
1: Whoa, listen to me. Can you see what
2: can um, People don't often ask other people questions. They, they don't and they don't really listen. Hmm. They just sort of take turns telling stories about themselves.
0: Listen to me and hold me tight and you
2: will see
1: Yes, I call that speech writing, and uh, it, it, it's not really listening. You know, the, if you're while the other person's talking, if that's just a sort of gap while you're writing your next bon mot <laughs> in, your, in pre- your mind. Exactly. Uh, that's not actually listening to somebody. And listening takes brain power. Do you know, I, I often think that listening is the most generous gift you can give to another human being. So I invite you to connect with me, connect with each other, take this mission out, and let's get listening taught in schools and transform the world in one generation to a conscious listening world, a world of connection, a world of understanding, and a world of peace. Thank you for listening to me today. Well, our special guest today is John Bailey from the Alekiski area. Is that right, John? That's where you grew up? I grew up in Arnold, which is part of the Alekiski Valley. Yes. And John, you've been very busy recording veterans, just very much like what we do here in uh, the Pittsburgh area and uh, the Beaver Valley. So you're in the Alekiski area and uh, you've been busy putting together a project. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself first and then your project. As you said,
0: I grew up in Arnold, uh, born 1958, second Eisenhower administration, uh, and I um, pursued a career in broadcasting that actually took me to the Beaver Valley. uh, Up in your area, Uh, WNBA Ambridge hired me for my first job back in 1975 on the weekends doing news, and after high school, I pursued broadcasting yet again, uh, didn't really Uh, pursue college. It was radio, morning, night, weekends, weekdays, anytime anybody would have me, Um, and bounced around Pittsburgh until 1986, and uh, then moved to Central Florida, Orlando, Florida, uh, for about uh, three and a half or four years, then on to Baltimore for maybe another two or three years and since 1991 I've lived in uh, the Washington DC area, either uh, Virginia or Maryland. Uh, Continued with broadcasting and finished up at uh, ABC Radio back in the late 90s and at that time I still needed a job and uh, I uh, fell back onto uh, television production and uh, news, corporate video, that kind of thing and from there just uh, working for um, independent producers, things of that sort, working on documentaries, uh, news related projects, things of that sort. And that was sort of a a catalyst or a catapult to to do some of the work that uh, I do with veterans because I've always uh, thought highly of what they do. I've never been in the military. Um, My father, uh, my mother's two brothers, I have uh, very good friends that were all in the military and i admired what they did i think highly of what they did and what their colleagues uh, have done and I, I imagine 2001 was the very first time i began to think how could i involve myself in something like that uh, a project where we would uh, record veterans and their stories and it just sort of languished in my brain for a few years uh, and then maybe Two or so years ago, uh, the idea came to just find people to talk to and and do video histories, essentially.
1: Now, was that difficult to find veterans who were willing to sit down with you and tell their story? Interesting, yes. Um, Because in in many cases, people don't want to talk about what they did. They don't
0: really – it's not that they don't want to share. It's just that in some instances – they're very personal, they're very private memories, um, sometimes painful. Um, what has happened lately uh, is that the newspaper, the, uh, the Tribune there, the Valley Daily News, uh, runs little uh, articles on things that are going on in the community and I submitted my work to them and they uh, published a couple of articles and people were able to contact me. They came to me and that makes it easier because, you know, they're pre-sold, they're already into the idea. And uh, that's a beautiful way to do it because they're sincere. Everybody's sincere, but they're, they're really they, – they have something they want to say.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, typically when a veteran uh, contacts you or sometimes maybe the veteran's family member or a friend, how do they put that? Uh, hey, I have a story to tell you or, boy, I, I was in a battle and I really want to share that with you. What, what do they usually say to you when they contact you? Well, the first thing, I, I have an idea of how old they are
0: when they when they call so I know the era that they're going to be uh, talking about Um, the people from the World War II era uh, in particular um, even though they've decided to to participate um, there's they they want to participate but there's a slight hesitancy because they're not sure in my view um, that people really want to hear these these things In other words, they want to talk, but they're not really sure that this is going to be interesting to people. I I can't imagine not finding what someone did on D-Day to be interesting. One of of my friends uh, went out with with 258 men on D-Day and about 93 of them came back. Wow. Those numbers are off the charts in terms of survival. Um, Steve Jager from uh, New Kensington uh, is a Pearl Harbor survivor. I believe he was at Hickam Field. And he had an uncle that was at the the other field in the vicinity of Hickam. And so you have two family members that are both at Pearl Harbor and back in uh, Creighton. Family members were, they had double anxiety. You know, two family members at Pearl Harbor. And no real way for them to contact their family back in, uh, in, in the Kiski Valley for three or four days. In the case of my guest, he had gone out uh, with some friends uh, the night before to Honolulu, uh, just out having fun and, and sending packages home uh, so they'd arrive uh, in the States in enough time for Christmas. And uh, they got back to the barracks at three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning. And at 7.55... They were awakened by the report of of gunfire. When they ran out uh, into the uh, into the common area, they could see uh, Japanese planes flying so low that you could see the expressions on the faces of the pilots. Mm. That's something that you would like to repel. And when they went for their weapons, they were locked. They didn't. They couldn't get their weapons until the attack was over.
1: Wow. <laughs> so. Um, so they went and they, they, saw the, they saw the Japanese coming in and they were so close that they could see their faces in the planes. That's right. And they said, let's get our guns. And they were locked up. Couldn't retrieve
0: their weapons until the attack was over. Until the attack was over.
2: When they were bombing the hangars, the planes, flames planes were shooting 100 feet up in here. And I said, this is something, something different. And sure enough, whenever the planes. Came by us as low as uh, perhaps two telephone poles. We realized that something was happening, and uh, we didn't even realize the fact that it was an attack by the Japanese.
0: Now that's who would not find that interesting. First of all, you're glad the guy survived. <laughs> you know, uh, Steve Jager is, a, is a, was a member of the Signal Corps, and so in the I guess the day or two after. They didn't get much sleep. There was a lot going on. He had a group of men under him. Uh, he talks about it in volume one of Duty, Courage, Honor. The Alekiski Valley Goes to War. He talks about how hard the people worked. How nobody really thought about anything other than getting communications. That's what the Signal Corps does. That's what they do and um, that was important. And then in the back of their mind, how are we going to reconnect with our families to tell them that we're okay? So those two things were in their head, I think that's fairly understandable.
1: Now, if I could take you back to, uh, you know, getting into the project here and starting the first of three volumes, right? Of your project, you have volume one of Duty, Courage, and Honor uh, from the nineteen forties to nineteen seventies, uh, and you're currently working on volume two. That's correct. Putting together the interviews, is that right? Mm-hmm. And you're planning a third volume.
0: We are planning a third volume. Yes, we're going to do it until we get it right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can appreciate that. I tell you, you know, I was in the Navy, and uh, I, you know, I wasn't in the the ship side of things. I was in the air air, uh, air force side of things. Uh, so I never really, you know, got into the whole tie knots and things, uh, you know, like a lot of people did. So my, my thing is, if, you know, if I can't tie a knot, I tie a lot, you mm-hmm. know. And mm-hmm. so I'm a photographer the same way. I take a lot of pictures because I think one of them is going to come out. I take a lot of video. I use two cameras because one camera is going to get it, you know. Uh, so I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You know, your first, your first DVD, mm-hmm. which is, a, I think, a great success. You gave me a copy of that. I watched it the other night. I really, really think you did a wonderful job on that. You have 12 veterans, correct on that?
0: I think um, there are actually 10 veterans, and then there's uh, a history teacher, Pete, a retired history teacher from the New Kensington Arnold School District. Pete Rowe uh, talks about Buffalo soldiers from the alley Valley, and there are two uh, that I can think of, that I'm aware of, uh, Kenneth Waugh, and the other gentleman is, uh, was uh, Lloyd Hayden.
1: How do you get a person who doesn't have all the freedoms that a country has to offer to give his life to love a country, that he had laid down his life for a country, whether it be on the, the hills of uh, North Dakota, the, the flats of Arizona, the, the jungles of Panama, or the cold in Korea, the Buffalo Soldiers, the story has not ever been told properly.
0: So we had 10 stories and one sort of retrospective on on folks from the alley Valley that uh, were Buffalo soldiers.
1: Okay. And one of those stories of veterans is posthumous, Wallace Powell. Wallace Powell, exactly.
0: Um, in fact, I'm going to his family reunion in about uh, three weeks. Wallace Powell uh, is a gentleman from uh, New Kensington related to the Waugh family. Uh, his family came to uh, the New Kensington area in the early 1890s, maybe maybe 1891, 92, and uh, they were very successful in business, owned uh, a number of very successful businesses at the turn of the last century. Uh, Wallace Powell's father uh, was elected constable of Parnassus in 1917. Um, Now that's no small feat for anybody, but it would be a particularly large feat uh, for a black man to be elected constable of a, uh, of a small borough. I think Parnassus was a borough at that time. They went on uh, to form uh, several successful businesses, uh, uh, a refuge company. Uh, they even owned a racetrack in the New Kensington area in the, in the teens and twenties. So uh, Wallace and his twin brother were both in the Navy. And uh, they both played Navy as young boys. I tracked them through uh, age six or seven, uh, through very late in their lives. And, uh, and as boys, they both have uh, naval uniforms on. Uh, and in the case of Wallace, um, he served in Chicago and, uh, and other places and,
1: and had a, a very fruitful uh, military career. I wonder if growing up next to the river there had anything to do with that. Not sure. I don't know if
0: boating activity took place uh, in, in the early and middle part of the last century. I'm not really sure about that. Um, I never knew him. Family mem- in fact, my mother and uncles uh, knew, the Powell, knew Wallace Powell, but I, I didn't um, and that particular part of his life. Uh, I don't really know very much. In fact, the only thing I know about is his military career.
1: Hmm. Yes. Oh, interesting. So you're saying that you, there are 10, uh, 10 veterans right. uh, on your first DVD, Volume 1, mm-hmm. with some extra content material on there talking about uh, the Buffalo Soldiers from the Alakiski Valley. Right. Now, uh, you know, we, we've been saying that quite a few times, the Alakiski area. Uh, let's define that, because I'm sure a lot of people... Around Pittsburgh, uh, may have heard of it, but really may not have an understanding of what that means or where the Allegheny Valley is. Could you sort of define that? Loosely
0: defined, it would be Catani to the north and approximately Oakmont, Verona, Penn Hills to the south, going east to west as well. Uh, that's a pretty large area. Now, there are some folks that would say, well, no, the Allegheny Valley is. Tanning to the north and New Kensington to the south. Well, a lot of the football teams, a lot of the uh, uh, high school teams from the Allegheny Valley actually play Penn Hills, and Penn Hills used to come to Valley whenever I went there as a as a uh, as a kid, and so I, I consider Penn Hills to be the uh, the tail end of it.
1: And the Allegheny refers to the Allegheny River and the Kiskiminetas River, correct? That's correct. Yes. Okay. And the in the uh, the other side of Pittsburgh, the western area, you know, we have the Ohio River Valley, but where I'm from is the Beaver River Valley, mm-hmm. uh referring to the the Beaver River Valley that extends north of the Ohio, uh just about 25 miles or so down from Pittsburgh itself. Now, uh you're working with uh the Alakiski Valley Area Historical Society in Tarentum.
0: Yes, they found
1: me. <laughs> They found you. Wow. That's funny. I mean,
0: it really is.
1: You want to tell us a little bit how that partnership came about? Uh, Jim
0: Thomas was um, president of the uh, Historical Society. uh, And uh, his cousin produced the, uh, actually wrote and produced the original music for Volume One. He's involved in Volume Two as well. And so um, Martin Thomas. Uh, introduced me to his uh, to his cousin Jim and Jim uh, sent me over to the uh, to the museum and uh, told me to take some of my work and um, you know, I guess we sort of formed a partnership at that point and that's how we became affiliated they allowed me to premiere the the first disc uh, at their facility in Tarentum, and November. In fact, it was uh, Veterans Day, last year, Veterans Day. And uh, Mm. that's how I became affiliated with them.
1: And that's a pretty amazing, uh, what I would call a a little historical gem, you know, the the historical society there. It's in an old uh, VFW post with lots of really interesting art deco uh, architecture and design in there. And it's uh, at uh, 224 East 7th Avenue in Tarentum, if anybody would like to look this up. It's very easy to find, and uh, they have limited hours, of course, they, and they do have a website. Uh, you could certainly Google that and uh, and find that. But that is an amazing little gem uh, there in Terenum with the amazing collection of artifacts, not only uh, military-related, but coal mining-related, industrial history-related. I'm going to give a shout-out to Jamie Stoner, who's the curator there, is whom you worked with,
0: Correct. Uh, yes. In fact, um, she has been very helpful with ideas and support. And uh, that's uh, actually, I think you and she met at uh, at an event. That's how you and I became affiliated as a result of uh, mm-hmm. some event. Maybe you could tell me a little more about that, because you were actually looking for, I think the story is you were looking for my work at that, were you?
1: Is that how that worked? Can I that ask you a question? <laughs> 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 sure. Turn the tables. <laughs> I met Jamie at a uh, Mining Memories uh, uh, dinner in April, and Mining Memories is an organization in the valley there that um, was put together to um, uh, build a a monument erected in dedication to the coal miners in the area, Mm -hmm. uh, which is an amazing history all unto itself. And uh, at some point... um, I'm gonna do some recording of coal miners in that area. So Jamie and I started to chat and she had mentioned the work that she'd been doing with you. Mm -hmm. And I had uh, heard of your project in the past, but I really didn't know much about it. So Jamie and I talked and she said, oh, well, we'll have to get you uh, connected with John. And so that's how, you know, we came to know each other Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you know, I am really pleased. Whenever I hear about projects going on that they're out there getting veterans' stories, I'm very pleased because we have so many veterans in the area and not one single project or two or three or even four could really do justice to the amount of veterans that we have and and the, the amount of stories that need to be captured and shared. You know, so I always say, "Hey, the more, the merrier." And so you're up there in the Alakiski Valley, you're doing your thing with the Alakiski Valley Historical Society. That's right. And I just had to go up and say, "Hey, you know, John, hi," introduce and myself, and how you know, and, and basically say, "You know, how can we work together?"
0: Well, I'm I'm glad you did. In fact, I was at the museum yesterday, uh, on uh, just paying a visit. You know, when you're in town, you go see your friends. And, uh, I took some of my, I'm a barbecue chef on the side and, uh, I had been telling them for a while that I was going to bring some goodies over and yesterday it happened to be uh, chili. Uh, barbecue steak chili and uh, little oh,
1: creation. Now, now wait a minute. Now, I, I haven't had lunch yet, so <laughs> I'm going to caution you. I'm, please, please don't go too deeply into that because well, I, I can tell imagine you the your barbecue is great. Thank
0: you, thank you. And so, <laughs> no, I no, went, you go right ahead. <laughs> I, I, I went over for a visit just to say hi, and um, and then we um, we talked about some things we're going to be doing in the future. Uh, you're going to, we actually talked a little about you because you'll be there on Wednesday, the second, doing some work, mm-hmm. uh, and making some plans for the future. And then I got on the road and came back to Maryland. I live in Maryland, uh, last night. And when we're finished today, I'm going to go back to work on, on volume two, which is really, um, it's not a consuming thing because it's something that I enjoy, uh, you know, but it does take time. It's not necessarily. I don't think "fun" is the right word because these are very serious topics. Topic of 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 war and peace and life and death. These are not uh, light subjects. But the people that you meet, you meet them as friends. Actually, I everybody that is alive on that poster uh, is a friend, and uh, mm-hmm. so these these and 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 perhaps on a on a personal level, I maybe mean, maybe there's a little bit of selfishness in there. You get to meet. People that are not only interesting but very nice. I told people that when I come to visit you, oh, we'll only need forty-five minutes to look at your pictures and me take some notes. It always took at least twice as long as what I said. <laughs> just, oh, sure. You know, sure. When somebody starts bringing out photograph, I'm a I'm a picture nut. Love to look at photographs, and when people can tell you what they were doing and what happened, and there's history involved, you just. You you could be there for ninety minutes or two hours. It could be light when you got there and dark
1: when you leave. No question. So there's some of that. I totally understand what you're saying, and 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 I, and I just have to you know uh, say something that I observed when I was up there recently to sit in on an interview that you did. Mm-hmm. You are a good listener. And that's very, very important in my experience. You know, when you're sitting down with somebody who has a story, maybe they may be ambivalent to tell you that story or nervous and so forth. Mm -hmm. That person on the other side of the camera, meaning you, meaning me, those of us asking the questions, it's also important to be patient and to allow that story to unfold. And that comes by way of being a very good listener. So I wanted to say to you, John, that, I observed that in you and I, and I saw that in, in, in that interview that you were doing, that that was very beneficial for you and for uh, your participant, who was Dr. Robert Pasek. That's right. A Vietnam War veteran. Yeah. Yes. But, well, I, but I, wanted to, I wanted to throw that in there uh, and compliment you on that before I, I appreciate uh, we that. moved on any other topic. I appreciate that. But I'm sorry, I cut you off. You were about to say something.
0: That's okay. You know what they say, the mind is the first thing to go.
1: Uh, I forgot what I was going to say, so you just keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it happens to me all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your interview process. Now, you're at the uh, Historical Society, and they have a wonderful uh, historical set laid out there for you with artifacts as a backdrop, which is really, really cool. Mm -hmm. So walk us through that. When someone comes in, how do you go about the process of gathering their interview?
0: Well, we've started uh, in most cases before that interview begins. Uh, We've done pretty much what we're doing. Uh, We talk for 15, 20 minutes, and and, and in most instances, I go out to the home, and uh, I've actually gone to to nursing homes as well, so I go where they are, and uh, they'll share their pictures with me, and I don't really get into the substance of the interview immediately, because I really want to save that for... Uh, for the time whenever we uh, or when we have the camera, you know that kind of thing So there's sort of a pre-interview process and they get to know me. I get to know them. There's some trust that's um, I, I think is is, um, uh, is shared, you know, uh, they come to trust me because um, you know, there's there's absolutely Nothing that I would do that would uh, denigrate anybody's story. I want to get these things out. I want them to be accurate, too. And I want people to be comfortable sharing whatever it is that they're they're going to talk about. And so that that sort of happens before they get to the point, uh, the part that you saw. Now, Dr. Pasek would be an exception to that. In fact, I think he's the only, he's certainly the only person in this project whom I have not met prior to him showing up. But um, typically, I get to know... Quite a bit about the individual. Doctor Pasick was easy to talk to, and uh, he was a, a medical officer, and he was able to uh, to speak with a with a certain keenness and awareness of the problem with veterans now at the Veterans Administration. And, uh, he had some very very uh, interesting things to say about what the government could and should do in that regard. So, and and his conversation was very topical. It was very current. I'm not sure who else that uh, was there that day that you you were there. But for me, you know, they know what they're going to say. I have to know the questions to ask. And that's Mm -hmm. how I formulate the questions by talking to them.
1: Now, do you approach your interviews with a set of very specific questions or are they more open-ended or general? Mix. It's a mix. It's a mix. Um, And then there's the follow-up. You know, because somebody
0: could take you off in a direction that you hadn't uh, thought about because you didn't know. You know, you can only get so much information out of somebody in in uh, in ninety minutes or two hours. Like I said, it was never forty-five minutes. Uh, And if you feed me, I'll stay longer and I'll come back. (laughs) (laughs) And so, but it you have to know the questions to ask, and then with that draft, you sort of go from there. I mean, they, again, take you off in directions that that you may not intend, but it's their story, so it's okay.
1: Mm -hmm. In our project, we, from the very beginning, uh, you know, we had this idea that we would let the veterans tell us their story in their own words, however that comes out. And we've been very successful, uh, we think, in getting an authentic story, you know, not a canned uh, response to Uh, what did you do in the war that sort of thing but that you know that open-endedness sort of lends itself to a sort of soul-searching if you will sometimes on the part of the veterans the interviewee who who stops and thinks well wow okay let me let me think about this experience that i went through in the military and sometimes they're surprised by their own stories for a long time i've been moving away from specific questions or even in uh, an agenda, I might have some ideas of, of specific things that I w- want to ask. But uh, I become less and less glued to that sort of approach and more just sort of free-floating or free-form with it.
0: Now that I think about it, you may have been there when the Shipmans were at the museum. You were there that day. I don't know if you saw um, William Shipman, a World War II veteran, and his son, Harry, who served in the Vietnam War. And uh, we we actually almost uh, had uh, Gene Shipman. Uh, we almost had three people from one family. Um, Gene was a Vietnam era nurse, uh, and but we did have father and son. Now, in the case of uh, Mr. Shipman, William Shipman, I had an outline based on uh, oral histories that Harry did. He emailed me the oral histories that he did with his father. They were very well done too. Harry asked. Uh, Uh, Harry did a good bit of my work for me, admittedly, Um, but for example, when I knew that he had knowledge of and participated in things relative to the Maginot Line, obviously that's a question I'm going to get him to, to talk about. First of all, what is the Maginot Line? and what did you do there, and what happened, and that kind of thing. Um, there were other people that had very specific points of reference that we had to focus on. For example, when people talked about death camps, uh, I, I sort of had some idea that they were proximate to these places where there were death camps, so I had to go there. And then they would talk as freely and as long as they wanted about you know various of those topics. So um, some of that was very well planned because... Those are things that, that people can, can come to understand and have a better, fuller understanding of what World War II was about. It was about two theaters. You know, it, was about, it was about a lot of people. Um, it, was a, it was a massive effort. And so you had people that were, I guess they were teenagers on December 6th, and they were men and women on December 7th and 8th. And uh, part of the interesting thing uh, about about the folks that I've I've had a chance to talk to is they have different stories about leaving Catanning or Creighton or Arnold or wherever it might have been, getting on a train and then getting on another train. There were a number of very interesting stories of people arriving at the train station in Pittsburgh to go wherever, and the people that they met, the things that were on their minds as they left uh, home for the first time, in many instances, a lot of people left. Uh, 17 or 18-year-olds, they'd never been any place other than southwestern Pennsylvania. I don't think people traveled as much uh, in the early 40s as they do now. But if those people don't tell what it was like to leave home going into who really knows what, they'll take those stories with them and that's not what we want. In fact, that's why we're 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 trying at least to get the World War II folks first, because we're not going to have them as long. And uh, that's right. We, we, and and then, you know, it's now it's difficult to get people from the Korean War era. That's interesting to me. It's the forgotten war for whatever the reason people forgot a war. I don't get that, but um, we'll help them remember when we can find stories of people from the Korean War. I don't call it a conflict. It's a war. You have a conflict with a sibling, (laughs) with your neighbor. You know, Korea was a war,
1: period. Sure. Many of those veterans uh, refused to call it a conflict. It was Mm -hmm. certainly a war for them. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Why do you think it's hard to find the Korean War veterans to interview? I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure why. I guess I I have the assuredness
0: of my answer. Uh, I I don't know. I, I just don't know. But um, I did find, or actually, no, this is a case of uh, people finding me. Um, the Kioski family from Ford City. Uh, there were six men in that family that went to wars between World War II and Korea. Now, I've wow. met I've met two of them. Uh, three of them survived. Walter, I have not met. Walter Kioski, I have not met. But. Um, Mr. Leo Kioski found me as a result of something in the newspaper.
2: My brother served in the armed forces. My brother Alec, my brother Lefty was in the, uh, he was in the Air Force, he was over in Germany. My brother Frank, uh, he was uh, in, in the Army. He was uh, stationed at uh, later on for the invasion of uh, Japan in, in Hawaii. My brother Waller was at Langley Air Force Base down in Texas. My twin brother, Leonard, and I were, were in the Army.
0: His story is, it's an amazing story of, um, he was burned over 40, maybe 50% of his body, and a, a high percentage of those uh, wounds were third-degree burns. And he lived as a result of receiving a skin graft from his twin brother, Leonard Kioski. Now, that particular uh, story is, uh, is amazing when you just have the one perspective. In Volume 1, we had, we had Leo Kioski, the person that was awarded the Purple Heart. And then in Volume 2, we just interviewed uh, his twin brother, identical twin brother, uh, whom provided him with a skin graft that saved his life. Both of these gentlemen are still alive. You know, they're, they're getting around uh, very well for guys well into their 70s or early 80s. And when you think that there were six Kioskis that all went to wars, that is an amazing story. Walter may or may not talk to us. He he's not re, he's sort of reticent about discussing anything he did in World War Two. So we may not get that third kioski, but he's pictured in Volume One, and we're gonna we're gonna fit him in in Volume Two. Maybe that'll be encouragement for him
1: to join us as well. Well, don't give up because uh, that's the, I mean that's an issue that we deal with too in our own project. That reluctance to speak comes from many different places, sources. There are lots of different reasons, and I I never push a veteran on that, of course. But, you know, we often find that once a veteran really understands the value of their story and how we we go about getting that story, we often find that um, uh, they're very accommodating. But it takes a little bit of time, of course, you know, relationship building, of course, you know, to um, to make that happen. We had a, a veteran uh, scheduled to interview with us uh, a few weeks ago when we were at the Rochester um, VFW Post 128. And he even came to the building, but then he couldn't bring himself to come down to the interview space. Mm-hmm. And uh, i never met him before, so except through the phone. Uh, so I went up and I chatted with him for a bit. And uh, I think I did a lot to sort of break the ice and to sort of make him feel a little bit more at ease. So when we go back there later on this summer to record, uh, he will probably come and join us then. But it's, a, it's often a very difficult thing, you know, to make that happen. And so, and, you know, another thing I, I observed when I was at, you know, your interview is that you, you really made the participant feel at ease. And that's very important. As I mentioned, you know, they're often very nervous, anxious about their story. They don't know what, what to tell you, what they should tell you, you know, that sort of thing. So you did a great job, I think, not only with your questions and listening to their, their story, and responding accordingly, but you made them feel very comfortable, I could tell.
0: Thank you. You want people to be comfortable. You do. You really want them to Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
1: You know, when we go into schools and we we bring oral history work to the schools and and we work programs uh, uh, getting children, young kids to uh, interview veterans and so forth, one of the things that we stress is that oral history is a humanizing activity. You know, it's not just I'm recording what you have to say, I'm going to ask you questions, you tell me, da-da-da. You know, it's not just transactional like that. It's a human conversation, one person to another, and that really matters. And if we get anything from an oral history activity beyond information, just basic information, we get a chance to have a real human interaction with somebody, and that's very important. There's a fellow who researches listening. His name is uh, Julian Treasure, and he says this, ultimately he says that, listening is one of the greatest gifts we could give another human being. Would you agree with that? I would definitely agree with
0: that. Um, It's a gift to them, but it's a gift to us because we learn from whatever is being imparted. I mean, this assumes that the person has wisdom
1: to share. Yes, I, I, I agree. John, tell us how we can get a hold of your DVD. And how we can uh, get a hold of you if there's someone in our lives that we want to interview. Sure. How could we get a hold of you?
0: I don't have a staff, so I don't have anybody to answer my phone, and I may be working, but I always uh, return calls the same day at 412 728 1374. And um, JB produces
1: research at
0: gmail.com.
1: And there's a website that you have, www.swpaveteranhistories.com. That's correct. We're building it out. It's not completely
0: uh, built out. We're going to be adding video over the next uh, couple of weeks. You may be familiar with Vimeo. Uh, It's an industrial, Industrial. you are, industrial strength, uh, industrial strength YouTube. we're going to We're gonna put up some of the videos from volume one within the next 10 days to two weeks. Um, I'm not really technically savvy in terms of uh, building websites. I have a a guy in Washington that's uh, that's helping me out, but then you have two people (laughs) that are both traveling going in different directions at the same time. So we work as best we can, but um, yes, that website is up and you'll be able to contact me. You'll also be able to buy various of our DVDs uh, from the website uh, over the course of uh, uh, the next month or so. But at, at the moment, uh, the DVDs are available at Health Mart pharmacies uh, in Lower Burl, Natrona, Vandegrift, and Leechburg. And then the uh, other two locations are Jeans Shoe Service in New Kensington and the Allegheny-Kiskey Valley Heritage Museum. Uh, my friends, your friends, uh, have consented to making uh, the DVD, Duty, Courage, Honor. The Alley, Kiske Valley Goes to War, available at their Terenum location. So, got friends over there. So do you.
1: Good. And you know what? We might as well mention your sponsors because the work that we do has to be paid for one way or another. That's just uh, the, the fact of economics, you know, and whether it comes out of our pockets, like so much of this does, or we have the generous support of, um, of the community of donations or a, a business, you know, that would sponsor us. I mean, th- this is what allows us to do what we do. So your sponsors, uh, we certainly want to give a shout out to Duster Funeral Home in Terenum and Performance Auto Service in Arnold, Fuzzy Simon Tire Service in Arnold. Buyer's Taxi Service, Myrna's uh, Brewery Outlet, uh, that's behind the Kmart there in New Kensington, and Lou and Pat Collin, and of course, your mom, Mamie Bailey.
0: Yes, mom helped, and Lou and Pat. Let me tell you a little bit about Lou. Now, Lou is, Lou, he's still a fighter pilot. Once a fighter pilot, always a fighter pilot.
2: Uh. (laughs) It started off with, i have been screwing around with boats and airplanes and stuff, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So I had to request some information on how you get into PT boats, and that didn't sound too favorable as far as my ability to make it. And so I was accepted into the V
0: five flight program in U S Navy. He uh, flew in World War Two in the Pacific Theater, and his wife Pat was incredibly well prepared. I said, "Pat, you've done all my work." And, uh, she had all of the pictures and things. He was an ensign uh, in the Navy, and. Um, he shot down. He got credit for shooting down four fighters. You now he shot down more, but you get you have you have to get gun confirmation, and so he he got credit for four. Unfortunately, one finally shot him down, but he was rescued, and he tells a, a very harrowing story of being in the water for several hours before he was found. Uh, we recorded sixty minutes of videotape. We compacted it into about nine minutes. And just recently, uh, his wife uh, asked me if I would put together the remaining footage uh, in a DVD for she and her friends and family. And it was a pleasure to do that. But uh, Lou is a veteran. Uh, he's uh, at a, a nursing facility out near Catanning. Uh, he has been in better shape than he's in now, but he's uh, he's, he's got his wits and uh, he tells a very interesting story in volume one. And um, He's one of the folks that helped make this thing happen and make it possible uh, to share interesting
1: stories. Good friend. He likes my food, too. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and, yeah, let's not forget, too, that you are barbecue chef. And right. if anyone out there is interested in having you cater their event or work with you on some barbecue, uh, you want to give your phone number again? Sure. 412-728-1374. Thank you, John Bailey, for joining us today on our podcast. We appreciate you taking the time and uh, talking about your project and sharing some of your ideas about the importance of interviewing veterans and preserving their story. Is there anything else you'd like to say? I'd like to talk about one um, one
0: person that uh, we interviewed, actually two people that we interviewed for uh, for Disc Two. Now, the first person uh, is uh, has a World War II story. His name is Charles. H Booth from the Burl Group Incorporated uh, out of New Kensington, big mining group, business uh, businessman for a number of years. He was a B-24 pilot and he was on a bombing run uh, over Europe, and I don't remember uh, which country, but they attempted to shoot him out of the sky. He received, uh, he was awarded several medals for being shot while piloting the plane yet managing to complete the bombing run and landing the plane safely he was probably the only he and the plane were the only thing that were hurt and so we talked to him for about 45 minutes or so and uh, and his story is fairly interesting because he's still here he's 94 he gets up every day and goes to work so we have him scheduled and then uh, recently uh, i went down to roanoke virginia uh, to interview adrian Cronauer from the uh, movie Good Morning Vietnam. This is the actual individual uh, that Robin Williams portrayed in the movie, in the 1987 movie. He grew up in Penn Hills. And as we said, Penn Hills is considered to be part of the Alley Valley. And he shared, uh, we talked a little bit about the movie. We really spent a good bit of time talking about Vietnam. There are some uh, some philosophical things that people have to say about that war. There are about the way it was waged and the way it was conducted, that kind of thing. And so we get into a little of that. Uh, Adrian went on to become uh, a lawyer after the movie, and he tells some lawyer jokes <laughs> and uh, and some other things that are, are are interesting. It's an interesting perspective. Both of those folks will be in volume two. Of duty, courage, and honor.
1: Well, thanks again, John. We appreciate your coming on, and uh, we certainly look forward to Volume Two. And we encourage everybody: call John, go to the website, email John, and get a hold of Volume One of Duty, Courage, Honor: The Alekiski Valley Goes to War.
0: Thank you, Kevin. B twenty four pilot Elias Moses, a World War II POW, explains escaping custody. Three times.
2: Well, first time, buddy of mine and I just hopped the fence. How do you uh, do? My name is Bill Urban. I served in the Navy as a gunner aboard a merchant ship during World War II.
0: I am Clarence H. Granz. I went into the Navy. I enlisted
2: in 1951. I am Nino Gacciardi. I was the bombardier before I was shot down. It was a wonderful life. <laughs> yes.
0: Now, the World War II experiences of a naval wave.
2: My name is Alice Farrell Masser. I was born in Brackenridge, Pennsylvania.
0: Dorothy Rogers discusses her Vietnam era service as a Marine sergeant.
2: Well, I uh, graduated in June, and I, like I graduated on Thursday, and on Monday I left for the Marine Corps. My, my name is Kelly Hasbara, born in Arnold, 1923. 90 years old. I, I uh, graduated New Kensington High School in 1943, and then I uh, was drafted in, in the World War II in the Navy. After my training uh, and my boot camp, I, I was—that's when I was shipped to uh, to Hawthorne, Nevada. I must say, I think I am the only the only sailor in in the U.S. Navy and had never seen water.
1: You know, the Financial Planning Association in Pittsburgh, they sponsor an award every year called the First Class Patriots Award. The recipient of that award Uh, a veteran, will have a chance to to donate um, $10,000 to a veterans-related charity. And we were actually uh, one of the finalists for uh, that $10,000 award this year. We were one of the top three. But the award went to Shepherd's Heart, which is uh, an organization that helps homeless veterans. And I couldn't think of a better organization for that award to go to. But I wanted to point out that uh, I had a chance to put together a nominee montage video for the big awards celebration at Soldiers and Sailors on May 20th. Uh, I was uh, appreciative of all the praise that received in putting that video together. And hopefully uh, some of those veterans that were nominees will have a chance to sit down with us to do a a long-form video at some point in the future. I also want to point out that we have a number of new veterans featured on our website. Now, not all of their stories are complete. We have some really nice photographs and uh, write-up about the, the veterans. So if you want to go to veteranvoicesofpittsburgh.com on the right-hand side, you will see a list of these new veterans to the website.
2: Well, I'll tell you, I, when I, I see one of our dead guys, and even if I saw a dead German, I kind of felt bad for him. I figured, vision in my mind that their dad and their mother was going to get a telegram saying their son was killed. And I felt the same way for the German, too, because I felt that he had to go to war the same as I did, you know. They brought him back to the White House, and uh, there was a member from each service that stood guard in the East Room of the White House. and. Um, I was one of the first groups to go on, and we went on there, and it was a, it was a casket that was the split casket that you could open the top part of it. And Jacqueline Kennedy, and, and uh, Teddy Kennedy, and Bobby Kennedy, and uh, Peter Lawford, he was there. And they came in, and uh, she whispered something. You couldn't, you know, we were close, but they were whispering. And they opened the top part of the casket, and they looked in there for a while and talked, and finally they closed it, and they left and we stood guard for on and off while he was there in the East Room of the White House. It was sad, especially for me. I mean, I was raised a Catholic, and he was a Catholic, and while we were watched, there was always a bishop or a cardinal or something there was kneeling and praying the whole time that the casket was there in the East Room.
0: What they usually say over there is your first 10 missions, you're like the new guy. And uh, the first 10 missions, it's funny that it almost is exactly 10. You're scared to death because you don't know what's happening. You're being shot at every day and you're figuring that, you know, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this.
2: Well, it was just mass confusion, screaming and hollering and everything. Everybody, guys, I want my mother and this and that. Some guys had never been away from home, you know. I was in the Connecticut National Guard at one point, and I was in the headquarters unit. One weekend, the first shirt says, hey, better look pretty sharp tomorrow. There's some people from Army Intelligence coming to see you. Uh, They wanted to ask me about a bunch of other demonstrations I'd been on.
1: Your wife says I shouldn't ask you about the girlfriends that you
2: had. (laughs) They were all over. I had one in each foxhole.
1: Michael Harriton was uh, in a World War II Army veteran in the Italian campaign. Charlie Frank, another World War II Army veteran. Uh, his story is being placed up there now. Tom Fraunas is an Army Cold War veteran from the early 60s. He stood to death watch over President Kennedy's body in the East Room of the White House. Very interesting story there. Anthony Marchand fought the Chinese in Korea with the Army. Larry Guggins was an Air Force F-4 pilot who flew nearly 200 missions in Southeast Asia while he was there. We have a, a very interesting story by a fellow named Jonathan Robison, who is from Pittsburgh. He was in the Army National Guard, which is a very interesting story. Never went to active duty, and according to the Veterans Administration, is not considered a veteran. It's an administrative kind of status that he has, but he seems to be okay with it. I don't understand it. But the fellow is not considered a veteran in the eyes of the government, although he spent six years in the Army National Guard. This was a very interesting interview because it was done by our associate audiographer, Anna Samuels. Bernard Pular, Lewis Cook, Rick Wetherell, Lou Weingard, and Vic Meisel are all veterans from the Tionesta area, whom we had a chance to record in February and now we have uh, their stories completely done on our website. So check those out at veteranvoicesofpittsburgh.com. I want to mention some of the breakfasts that are coming up, sponsored by the Veterans Breakfast Club. In Penn Hills on July 4th, we have a breakfast at the Comfort Inn Conference Center. And that will be at 699 Rodai Road, Pittsburgh, PA, 15235, if you want to look up the address there. That will be on July 4th. We'll also be there again at August 22nd, as well as September 26th of this year. So we have a couple more dates to uh, attend the, the, the breakfast there at the Comfort Inn. Our next breakfast in Mars will be July 9th. And this will be, and this is in the Cranberry area. This will be at the Mars VFW Post 7505, 331 Mars Valencia Road, Mars PA 16046. If you want to look up that address, This is a special free breakfast sponsored by the VFW Post there. We are very pleased to come back every year and meet with the VFW folks who put on a very wonderful spread. And then also coming up July 15th, we have a breakfast at St. Peter's Place in the South Hills, and then July 16th at Robert Morris University, and that's in the Moon area. Again, if you go to the website, you will be able to see the specifics of the breakfast, what time they begin, and uh, the costs of the buffet and of course all the breakfasts are free to attend if you just want to come and uh, meet some veterans and listen to the program that's put on by Todd who is not only the executive director of the Veterans Breakfast Club but he's also an historian and author so the programs are always very factual and very well presented. And I, I do want to say that uh, if you're going to attend a breakfast, that uh, we ask that you RSVP by calling 412-623-9029. That's uh, a number that you can get hold of Todd. Or you can email Todd at Todd at VeteransBreakfastClub.com. That's T-O-D-D at VeteransBreakfastClub.com. Our next Veterans Recording Event will be on July 2nd at the Alakiski Valley Historical Society, and that's at 224 East 7th Avenue, Tarentum, PA. Jamie Stoner is the curator there at the museum, and she can be reached at 724-224-7666. If you have any questions about the museum there, you're welcome to come by and watch us record on July 2nd. It'll be a good day for us there. And also, we want to come back to VFW Post 128, in July and August as well. So we will continue our breakfast and we will continue our recording dates throughout the summer and on into the fall. And we'll talk about those in later podcasts. We want to close this podcast out by mentioning how to reach us. And you can do that through our website, veteranvoicesofpittsburgh.com as well as veteransbreakfastclub.com. Our website has news, lists of events, our veterans' interviews are posted on there. We're also on Facebook, so go on there and give us a like. And we're also on Twitter, so you can follow us on Twitter. Remember to come to our breakfast, and please, please, please consider supporting the work that we do. Your generous support helps us continue our nonprofit mission to preserve these stories and to pass them on to future generations. Thank you for joining us today on Veteran Voices, the podcast series. This has been our 10th podcast, July 2014. Stay tuned for our next podcast coming up later on this summer, where we'll share with you some of the events and activities that we've been doing to capture and preserve the stories of our local veterans. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Veteran Voices
2: you're listening to veteran voices you're listening to veteran voices of pittsburgh